welcome to this session on treatment of malaria. My name is Charlie Mossler. Um, I'm a College of Pharmacy professor at the University of Finley, which is in northwest Ohio, uh, about an hour south of Toledo, if anyone um, has a better understanding of maybe where Toledo is than Finley, Ohio. Uh, so tropical medicine is, has become kind of a, a, a strong interest for me. Um, my background has been in geriatrics. I've worked in long-term care nursing homes, um, and that's ultimately why I got into teaching that in the College of Pharmacy. But all along, I was participating from the time I was a college student, so it's great to see many people who I assume are students um, here. But all along, I was participating in medical missions trips, and so kept running into things like malaria, things that I wasn't taught in pharmacy school, really. We were taught, you know, how do you prevent someone, or at least try to prevent someone from getting malaria if they're going somewhere fun, um, but we weren't really taught how to treat malaria, and so I kept becoming more and more interested, and then when I, when I started at the, at the College of Pharmacy, there was another faculty member who had very similar interests, and he and I then started an elective in tropical medicine um, that at the time, this was what, seven or eight years ago now, um, was the, the, from what we could tell, was the only uh, tropical medicine sort of elective in a college of pharmacy in the United States. So we were pretty happy about that. Um, and it's been a, a pretty strong course from the perspective of students because it's, it's not something that you learn every day. And so it makes it a little more interesting than maybe learning about hypertension and Parkinson's disease and things like that. It's a, a little bit different vent. So that's what's kind of brought me to, I'm going to trip myself here yet, um, to talking about malaria um, here with you guys today. Um, but before I get started, I'm just curious, how many of you are students of some way, shape, or form? So this side is sitting in the dark, the, the nap time over here. And how many of you are health, licensed healthcare practitioners in some shape or form? All right, so close to 50-50, so that's good. Um, how many of you have worked in a place that has malaria? Good, so most of you. How many of you just haven't, but want to someday potentially work somewhere in malaria. Okay. So, so good. So we have a good mix of people, and, and hopefully part of this will, will touch everyone um, in some way, shape, or form, or you'll get something from it. Um, one other thing I want to mention before we get started is um, if you don't want to take pictures of the slides or anything, they should be available on the Medical Missions website, um, so you can go there and download them um, at will. I believe those are all up and available, at least it looked like from my end they were up and available um, earlier this week, so I do encourage you to do that if, if you would like to um, have copies of the slides. Um, also at the end, I'll talk about several references that I would encourage you, if you really have a strong interest or are going to an area with malaria, that have a lot more information, as in hundreds of pages of information, um, that's... <coughs> easily accessible, downloadable, and, and is most importantly free. Uh, so we'll talk about that towards the end as well. So enough, let's start talking. And so as this is a, a CE for some of you, potentially, we have to talk about this. And, and yes, we will discuss some off-label malaria treatments. The FDA, a lot of these doesn't really, it's not that they don't recognize, we just don't use them here in the United States. So the FDA doesn't necessarily have any control over those, so we will talk about those. The objectives overall, hopefully educate you a little bit more about the treatment options that we have available for malaria. The one thing that's somewhat difficult about doing a, a lecture like this in, in 45, 50 minutes is, depending on where you're at in the world, you're going to use probably very different, not probably, you are going to use very different treatments for malaria than other areas of the world. So this is hopefully a good overview of everything. We just don't have time to get into the specifics of what we, what's going on now in Thailand with some resistance issues and how do we treat that and things to consider. So, so hopefully everyone will get something out of this. When we look at malaria in, in general, and again, those of you, a good chunk of you who have been there have, have probably seen this. There are some villages where we just see a lot of malaria. And there's other villages where, for whatever reason, we don't see as much malaria. Reasons for that are, are wide and varied. There's, you know, definitely some genetics. There's some educational issues. Um, there's the mosquito sorts of, of biting habits, which mosquitoes are actually there. Um, and so there's lots of different reasons for this. But we definitely see malaria manifestations vary quite widely um, from one place to another. Some other reasons why that is... Um, again, like the mosquitoes that are there, what type of mosquitoes are there, how, 
how hungry are they, um, what season is it, all those sorts of things play a big role um, when we start looking at what actually is going on. Most recent data that's available, which is pretty recent, 2015, um, World Health Organization estimates there is 214 million cases of malaria around the world. Um, think about that number. You know, right now, if we turn on, if, if, if we eliminate all the politics from the news, which is hard to do right now, but if we eliminate all that and you hear anything about tropical medicine, which, which thing, what do you hear about? Zika. How many people are infected with Zika in the world right now? From this outbreak, so starting in Brazil in like March of 2015, there's been an estimated, and it's pretty hard to tell with Zika, but an estimated one and a half million people in the last year and a half. So now malaria, 215 million and 438,000 deaths. So to me, it's, you know, and I understand the news, right? We have Zika being transmitted here in the United States in the Miami area. So, of course, that's going to hit the news. But from a global perspective, Zika is, can be a very devastating disease to infants. We know that, right? Um, but it doesn't cause anywhere near this sort of sheer numbers of, of problems, of death, of people with this disease. So it's always interesting, I think, to think about that in perspective. All right, so malarial transmission, again, is dependent on a lot of those things. What we're seeing more and more issues with is the drug activity. Um, some of the drugs that we've really thought have been resistant, while they still work, or, or have not shown resistance, while they still work, are starting now, especially in parts of Southeast Asia, show some resistance. And so we'll talk about that um, as well. When you look at malaria... It's interesting, too, because there's a couple different types of transmission. In, in areas of the world where we have kind of a tropical environment all year round, we have what's called stable transmission. Here, you walk outside in March, you walk outside in June, you walk outside in December, your odds of getting bit by, by a mosquito that has malaria are exactly the same, essentially, in any of those days. And so what we can see in some of those areas of the world is we can have um, some patients start to develop some resistance um, to malaria, some um, autoimmune or some immunity to malaria, and so you don't see them get malaria from, from year to year necessarily. They might remember, oh, yeah, when I was a child I had malaria or something along those lines, and, and they might get sporadic outbreaks here and there, but predominantly we don't see that. Um, so we have this idea of stable malaria, Again, adults may have positive blood smears, so they are getting bit by those mosquitoes, but they're not getting necessarily ill. The people who are getting ill, though, are still um, the children and the pregnant women. They're still greatly affected, even in areas that, with the stable transmission. So, again, we have this idea that they have some naturally acquired immunity because they're getting bit constantly with it, so their immune system is able to keep up and stay on top of that. Areas, Other areas of the world... And this will be like some parts of Mexico, um, some parts of like Argentina area, where we have unstable malaria. And this is where we see malaria pop up during the rainy season. And then other times of the year we don't see malaria. So you might see that in, in those areas. And, and here what can happen is people can actually get sick more frequently with malaria because they're not being reinfected with it all the time. And so those are the two main distinct patterns of transmission that we see with malaria. So, again, here's some other things that can lead to innate immunity. Um, and, and probably most of you are familiar with these. Sickle cell anemia, G6PD, uh, which is a, a deficiency in an enzyme, um, thalassemia and ovalocytosis. Those are all things that we commonly think of, oh, I don't want those, or I hope my patients don't have that. Um, but what we've seen, especially with like sickle cell, is patients are more, um, it's more difficult for them to develop malaria because it's more difficult than um, for the parasite to actually feed. So acquired immunity, this is kind of going back to the idea of stable um, transmission. Um, neonates, it's, it's important to know that there is some maternal antibody protection for newborn babies. 
um, especially if that mother was constantly getting reinfected with malaria, which it probably was. Um, so there is, for the first six months or so, there is some antibodies that will help those children. Again, adults tend to get less severe bouts of the disease. And this is important from a perspective of the United States. Without reinfection, immunity tends to wane after about five years. Usually even around three years is when you can start to see that. So how many people each year are diagnosed or treated for malaria in the United States? Roughly 1,500 to 2,000, depending on the year, somewhere in that general range. So, now how many of those cases of malaria were obtained in the United States? Zero. Um, at least for a long, long time, we've had no transmission of, of malaria in the United States. You don't have to go back that far in our history, though, to find out that it was there. Um, so, where do those 1,500 to 2,000 cases of malaria come from? They come from, um, obviously, the rest of the world. And a lot of the times they come from people who immigrated here to the United States and they go back home to wherever that was and they think, well, when I lived here I didn't get malaria or I didn't take malaria meds, so I'm not going, there's no reason for me to take them now, I must be immune to it. Well, what they don't realize or don't understand is that if they've been here in the United States for a number of years and then go back and see their family, they've lost that immunity because they're not getting reinfected with malaria. And so, Pretty much all of the 1,500 to 2,000 cases of malaria we see in the, in the United States each year um, are in people who are going back to visit family um, and, and things like that. And so we do still see some travelers, missionaries who get malaria as well, um, but the big chunk of those is in these individuals who just think, well, I never took anything from malaria. Why would I do anything now? Um, again, pregnancy, severe illness, surgery, um, age, children, affect um, or decrease this immunity that can be acquired. So pregnancy. This is definitely a very troubling population um, who can suffer from malaria worse than others. Um, some people, though, are asymptomatic. Like with Zika, you know, one of the reasons that we have a difficult time figuring out how many people actually have Zika is 80% of them are asymptomatic. Um, and so here we can have, just like with adults or people who are not pregnant, they may be asymptomatic even though they have technically um, the plasmodium species, uh, uh, the malaria floating around in their blood. Or, and then this is unfortunately too often the case, they may have very severe um, problems with malaria. What this can lead to then is problems for that child, for that baby, may have decreased birth weight. Um, you have to watch for all of these things in these women. They may become anemic. Hypoglycemia is definitely a big issue, and I imagine some of you have probably seen that um, working with pregnant women in, in these parts of the world. Um, pulmonary edema, fetal distress, premature labor, and, and stillbirth. So we definitely can see um, problems in pregnant women who develop malaria, which can be somewhat um, difficult to actually manage because of the medications that we are able to use in pregnancy. So malarial management, you know, the, the gold standard is that all patients need treatment. Now, having said that, you and I all know that not everyone who develops malaria in a lot of the world, they probably don't take anything for it. They probably um, suffer through it. Oh, I have malaria again, maybe some Tylenol or whatever they have available, but they probably don't get, a lot of them probably don't get a true anti-malarial medication. So in an ideal world, yes, they'd all get treated and they'd all feel better um, more quickly, but that's, again, not always necessarily easy to do. Many patients also will develop a very high fever, and so they'll need some sort of um, antipyretic, um, such as acetaminophen, um, which is the APAP abbreviation there for maybe those of you who don't know, and then ar ibuprofen. Um, recommended to avoid aspirin in children because of the risk of Ray syndrome, um, but that's, you know, again, maybe not even a concern in, in your part of the world if aspirin is not available. And, of course, you always want to assess their ABCs. Um, is, are they breathing well? Is their circulation well? What's going on there? Yes? Do you have any comment on, like, number needed to treat or, like, in a resource-limited situation, we have a patient who's maybe lower risk avoiding treating them? So, in a, yeah, in a, I haven't seen any data on number needed to treat um, from that perspective, but, but yeah, I think there would be, a, if, if you are resource limited, there would be a triage sort of system um, where you might observe those patients, give them things like acetaminophen, and conserve the anti-malarials for individuals who 
are more serious or, or more or worse off. So, yeah, I, I haven't seen anything like that. I don't know if anyone's seen any data like that, number needed to treat about people who just have kind of minor symptoms from a malaria perspective. I, mean, I haven't seen enough, but I mean, anecdotally, it's, you know, it's based on the severity of the disease. Right. So I think you definitely will see that triage. So it would be interesting to look up. I'm mad. I would imagine someone's published something along those lines, but I haven't, I haven't run across that. So what do you do? Well, these are things you really have to watch for. And so, again, these would be the patients we'd want to treat um, probably more, more quickly. Um, treat hypoglycemia if it occurs. Um, again, especially more likely, more common to occur in, the, in pregnancy. Watch for bacterial co-infections. So some patients, because malaria is kind of taking over their immune system or their immune system is attacking the malaria parasite, you do have to watch. It makes it easier for them to get infected with a bacteria. And so both things going on at once can be quite problematic. Dehydration can be um, a big issue in these patients. That's, you know, what ultimately um, harms a lot of the children who are affected. And then the last two, again, depending on resources, um, may be difficult um, for you to, to treat, depending on what you have available. But um, being able to recognize the breathing issues, being able to recognize the circulation issues, um, and being able to better prioritize those patients is, is definitely very important to do. But again, um, depending on resources available is not always real easy. So when we look at how we actually treat um, kind of the mainstay of treatment for, for an uncomplicated sort of malaria, and even for complicated once we get into that, um, are the artemisin and base um, combination therapies. Um, essentially, it's a combination of two drugs. One is a traditional anti-malaria, you know, things like mefloquine that we've all heard of, um, and then an artemisin and the derivative that we'll, we'll talk about. Now, it reduces, this combination is thought to reduce resistance, and it does seem to reduce resistance of the malaria parasite to the actual medications that we're giving. Um, same sort of idea as how we treat HIV AIDS, how we treat tuberculosis. Hit it with several different drugs with different mechanisms of action, and that will help prevent some of the resistance patterns. Um, when I gave this similar talk here probably three or four years ago, this next statement wasn't there. That next statement said there is no known resistance to artemisinin products. Well, now what we're seeing in Thailand, what we're seeing in, in other parts of that area of the world, Vietnam, we're starting to see some quote-unquote resistance to these compounds. Now, that resistance um, is not to the effect like what we commonly think of resistance, meaning, you know, if, if we have a urinary tract infection and I give an antibiotic that's resistant or that the, that infection is resistant to, it's not going to help you. Here, resistance with the artemisinin compounds has meant that we need to give those compounds for a longer period of time. It takes longer now for those drugs to become effective. So far, at least in everything I've seen, they're still effective we just have to give them for a longer duration of time in those individuals. So it's becoming a little more interesting. Um, and, and, again, it, all the drug manufacturers, I'm sure, out there are working on the next line of, of treatments. But just like with, with bacterial infections, with viral infections, we do have to worry about some of the resistance with um, treatment of malaria. For patients who actually have malaria, the non-artemisinin-based combo therapies are not recommended at this point in time. Um, because we see more resistance when there's no artemisinin in, involved. So here are some of the, the more commonly used ones um, that we actually see out. There's quite a few others. There's others that are in development. Um, but these are the big players that seem to be used in, in good chunks of the world. And we're going to talk about each one of those individually. So this first one, artemether plus lumefantrine, um, again, indicated for uncomplicated falsoparum infection, and also complicated um, in, in those individuals. The dosing, um, again, is there's pediatric dosing, there's adult dosing, um, and so that's going to depend on what, who, you're, who you're treating. The one interesting thing with this particular product is that you want to take it with milk or a fat-containing food or a meal of some sort, which may not always be what that person wants, depending how ill they are. Um, they may not be interested in drinking milk or eating a large meal. 
It increases absorption, so that's why we recommend taking this one with food of some sort. So it tends to work better in those individuals. From a side effect perspective, you know, when you look at these side effects, they're, they're pretty benign overall. Um, patients are often going to have these just as a result of having malaria anyways. Um, so you have headache, you have, can have palpitations, which could be a little more concerning. Um, fever, chills, GI upset, which again is pretty common with any drug. Um, and sleep disturbances. Contraindications, QT prolongation. Now again, depending where you're at in the world, you're not going to have a, an, any idea if that patient has QT prolongation, which is only going to be able to be seen on the EKG. Um, so, you know, it's kind of one of those risks versus benefits sorts of, of dilemmas that you run across all the time. And, and in the vast majority of patients, the, the benefit is going to greatly, greatly, greatly outweigh any risk um, associated with that. So contraindication officially um, is QT prolongation, but again, most people, depending where you're at in the world, are not going to have any way of knowing for sure if there is actual QT indication or QT prolongation. So can we give this medication? Yes. So with the, this is the colardum, the You know, I haven't seen anything like that, but it kind of makes sense. If you do have a severely malnourished patient, it's, they may not have enough, you know, reserve fat that it may not help as much. The bigger thing, I think, is if you're able to give some fat to that child um, at that point in time, if they're able to tolerate some oral fat, then I, I think it's going to work because then you're going to get it into the bloodstream and it's, it should work fine. So as long as that child is getting, assuming a child or adult, doesn't matter, um, is getting some sort of, of feeding at that point in time, it should be fine. Um, pregnancy, lactation um, is a used caution. Um, so it's one that we can probably use in that individual who is pregnant, who is getting to the point where we're needing, needing treatment. Availability, this one is available. I don't know those of you who have been around the world. Have you seen this one used? Yeah. So What's that? Yeah, it's everywhere. So this one is still out there, still used quite frequently, um, no matter where you are. And it's actually one of the few combinations that we can get relatively easily in the United States. So you might see it if those of you students are, are working in a hospital or somewhere where might have a, a patient um, who is being treated for malaria in the United States. The next one are testinate plus mefloquine. Um, this one doesn't come in a nice single tablet sort of thing. You have to use both individual medications, um, and so it's going to be two tablets or more, depending on the dose that the patient's actually getting um, at, at that one point in time. The other thing that, that I forgot to mention, I'm just going to flip back here, the dosing, you, you do kind of have to watch the timing of the dosing for the, the coartum. Um, again, it's never going to be perfect, um, or at least my experience is never going to quite be perfect. Give one at zero hours, eight hours, 24 hours, 36, 48, and then 60. So it's kind of a little bit funny getting started, and then after a day it becomes every 12 hours. Um, when you look at mefloquine or testinate combination, um, it's a little bit easier because it's just once a day for three days. Um, the dosing, though, um, for the mefloquine is, is different. Um, but it's a little bit easier um, for, for some patients to take because they don't have to think necessarily quite as much. Um, pediatric, again, there's pediatric ranges depending on, how, on the age of that child. From a side effect profile, I imagine a lot of us in this room have taken mefloquine, and a lot of us in this room have prob for prophylaxis have probably had the sleep disturbances associated with mefloquine. Um, I've taken mefloquine, and I've don't sleep any different, but I know definitely a lot of people who ha have very vivid nightmares, very vivid dreams um, while they're taking um, mefloquine. Other than that, it's predominantly GI-related, um, which, again, is I can't think of any medication that we talk about that's not going to have any GI sort of side effects. Again, contraindications, QT prolongation, which we're not really always going to know, and I imagine even those of us who have taken mefloquine as prophylactic, we didn't have an EKG before the doctor dispensed that or prescribed that for us. Um, so, again, it's a risk, but relatively minor sort of risk. Um, pregnancy, uh, relative, probably best to stay away from this one um, in the pregnant individual. Um, unknown overall in humans, but there had been some teratogenicity seen in animal studies 
similarly, lactation, um, probably not the best um, thing. But then I always come back to, when you think about lactation, we can't actually use this in pediatric patients down to five months of age. Um, so if, if that's the child who is, is being breastfed, it's probably going to be fine, that individual. What we don't know are the newborns, or what's less clear is the newborns. Um, our testinate, um, so here's where we start getting into um, some difficulties obtaining. I don't know, our testinate, from what I've been able to find and talk to people, is a little more difficult to find than coartum. Is that right? It looks like people are probably less familiar, judging from your faces with this one. So... It's less available. Um, even in the United States, you can get it, but it's only available through the CDC. And then they're going to send you an IV formulation, not the oral tablet form. Um, so, again, probably not one of the more frequently used ones, depending on where you're at in the world. Mefloquine, though, is widely available wherever. We could probably walk to the nearest Rite Aid or CVS or whatever is, is across the street here and they're probably going to have a stock of mefloquine on the shelf for those people who are traveling um, to those parts of the world. Our testunate and sulfadoxine pyrimethamine, um, commonly abbreviated SP, as you can probably figure out why, um, is again one that I don't think is widely as used. Is that right? I haven't seen this one as much. Is, is coartum the one that you guys see most? Yeah. What's that? ASAC. I don't know what ASAC is. Okay, yeah, we'll get there next. Um, so our testinate amodiaquin um, is coming. So those are the two that are probably most commonly used. This one we look at, um, why don't you see this? Well, you don't see this as much because there's resistance to the sulfadoxine pyrimethamine in a lot of the world. So the only place where we actually use it are where there's 28-day cure rates, and this, this data is available from the World Health Organization, um, to the sulfadoxine pyrimethamine alone of greater than 80%, which is just some parts of Africa. Um, and so when you're looking at using this one, that's why you're not going to see it widely available because it's going to be, and most of the world has 28-day cure rates that are less than 80%, which means we don't want to use this medication because of known resistance to it. Um, <clears throat> Um, dosing is, again, relatively straightforward uh, for three days, how patients are going to take it. And, again, there's pediatric dosing available down to five months of age. When you look at side effects, again, predominantly we're worried about GI. This is one that we don't have that QT prolongation um, concern. So if you do have a patient who has known arrhythmias or known QT prolongation, which, again, Good luck. Um, but this would be one that might be more beneficial for that individual, again, assuming you're in an area of the world, parts of Africa, where we see sulfadoxine pyrimethamine not having the resistance to it. Um, we do have a sulfa allergy. Um, so you can see, whoops, typo here. Um, there is a sulfa component to sulfadoxine. So we do have a sulfa allergy warning and renal failure, hepatic failure, um, could be problematic. However, <clears throat> excuse me, for most people who would be using this for about three days, probably not as big a concern as something that might be used for longer than that. <clears throat> Pregnancy, lactation, both are contraindicated. Um, so this would not be one to use in those individuals. Um, SP, widely available, except in the United States. And, and I probably need to add to this because to make it a little more clear, if you're in an area where SP is resistant, or where malaria is resistant to SP, you're probably not going to find it available there on the shelves. So here's the artesanate amodiaquin, which, again, is one that's, that's more frequently used in, in good chunks of the world. Um, we do still see some resistance um, to, where the, to the amodiaquin curate. So I'm, you see it in West Africa? Yep, so... so so in West Africa is pretty much the only place you're going to see this one, but it is widely available. Uh, I've talked to other people in Western Africa, and, and yes, and this is one they commonly see there because they don't have the resistance to it, at least they don't yet. Um, so when you look at indication, again, uncomplicated. Dosing is available, again, for pediatrics. Um, this one, though, is, is more commonly used in, in younger than five months. Or you could see it used in younger than five months as well. Side effects, pretty much similar to what we've seen um, with others. There's not really anything different for those. Pregnancy, 
Uh, not recommended to be used in the first trimester. Other than that, thought to be safe. Um, lactation, probably okay. There's limited data available, but it, there's no data that seems to indicate that it could be problematic. Again, availability seems for the most part to be limited to Western Africa um, due to the, the resistance to amodiaquine. All right, so let's take a little break and, and talk up through some questions. Which of the following recommendations should be made for someone who is receiving artemether or lumefantrine? That's that coartem. Hey, very good. Yep, take, take with milk or some sort of fat-containing food. You guys are paying attention. Even the people in the dark. Um, which of the following statements is correct regarding artemisinin-based compounds for treatment of malaria? Uh, lots of resistance. Lots of resistance in the United States. We could probably eliminate that one. Um, should only be used if a patient cannot tolerate uh, mefloquine or generally more effective if given with another antimalarial. Yep, generally more effective if given with another antimalarial. Um, keep in mind, while I did talk about resistance, most of the world there's no problems with resistance to these drugs. Um, only in, in very specific parts of, of Asia do we see that, at least at this point in time. Now, again, like everyone was pretty familiar with coartem, what's going to happen 5, 10, 20 years down the road from now because we're giving that to a lot of patients? I don't know. Um, we could see more and more resistance and, and likely will. All right, if an area in Western Africa has a known cure rate of amodiaquin of 60%, do we use it or do we not use it? No, it has to be greater than what? 80%. Again, widely available um, information or easily accessible information from the World Health Organization um, that you can look that information up if you're not sure where you're in the area where you're at, what it is. Yes? Is the monotherapy cure rate based off of culture data or patient? Patient data. So based off. So, so they're still, they'll still do it for monotherapy, even though we're not really recommending its use. Um, I imagine there's still some, there is some culture um, data available as well, um, but these are based on human um, ingestion. All right, so what else do we have available? Well, we have alternate um, things available, and we use these predominantly if patients... Um, Treatment failure of less than 14 days after therapy. So if they still have malaria symptoms within two weeks of finishing that three-day course or whatever it was with the combination therapy. What do we do for that individual? Um, so here we can go on and, and give our testunate based on a milligram per kilogram um, basis plus tetracycline, doxycycline, or clindamycin, all antibiotics. And so those actually are killing the good bacteria that's also in the, the, the plasmodium, in the malaria species as well. And so here we're not taking the antibiotic necessarily as an anti-infective for us. We're taking it to kill off what the, the bacteria that the parasite needs to live as well. Um, so that's an option that's available. Um, quinine is also an option, um, plus tetracycline, doxycycline, or clindamycin. However, I imagine some of you are quite familiar with quinine is, not, is a nasty drug. Very poorly tolerated. Patients don't like it. Lots of side effects. Um, so you generally see pretty bad adherence from a patient perspective to get them to take it. Um, and, of course, doxycycline, tetracycline should not be given uh, to, to pediatric patients or a woman who is pregnant um, because of some potential um, for some, some adverse effects in that, those individuals. So treatment of severe malaria, whoops, what do we do? Well, well, we want to identify what severe malaria is. So what sorts of symptoms does a patient who has severe malaria, what do they have? But I, I heard everything at once, and I was like, wow, <laughs> just like in class. What was some? Yeah, you could see liver involvement, blood pressure dropping, seizures, um, so any sort of, when you, once you start getting the CNS involved in seizures or patients going unconscious, comatose, um, that's when you start being really concerned. And so here you want to, um, to get that start, well, recognize it, get treatment started as early as possible, and um, continue to, to move on for that patient. So how do we treat severe malaria? We have several different options, and you're going to recognize most of these drugs. Um, but we, our testunate is one. 
Um, and so our testinate, we would give milligram per kilogram basis. We give it IV um, at 0, 12, 24 hours, um, and then continue IV. We could switch to oral as soon as that patient is able to tolerate taking oral. Um, but until that point in time, we'd want to recommend giving IV. Um, when you compare it to quinine, it, it definitely works better. So this is why we recommend this more than quinine, or why the World Health Organization recommends this um, more than quinine, because it, it does work better. So here's the other option that we have is quinine. And so when do you, what sort of patient would you give this to? Well, a patient who can't tolerate our testinate, if they've had previous experience with our testinate and were unable to take it, or if you just don't even have our testinate available, you could use quinine. The one big thing that I'll caution that you have to really watch with quinine is it can make the hypoglycemia that malaria can cause in pregnancy, it can make it even worse. And so you can really bottom out someone's blood sugar by using this, this medication. Um, so you do have to watch it. Artemether um, is another option that's available, considered to definitely be on down the, the line of things of what you might want to use because um, it has very erratic absorption. Some people it will be absorbed and work very well, and others it just pretty much passes right through them. So it is an option. Um, has anyone seen Artemether just alone? So yes, so a few of you. Um, so um, high transmission areas of, of malaria, this would be recommended for some of those individuals. Um, quinidine, I'm guessing we don't see a whole lot um, in, in large chunks of the world because, well, one, it doesn't work as, as well, and then it requires, ideally, um, continuous cardiac monitoring because it is a, a anti-arrhythmic. We use it as, well, it used to be used as an anti-arrhythmic here in the United States. All those anti-arrhythmics, especially in someone who is ill and probably has some electrolyte abnormalities anyways because of dehydration, can become pro-arrhythmic, so it can cause arrhythmias um, and potentially life-threatening arrhythmias. So that's why it has the official recommendation of to use only with cardiac monitoring. Um, again, um, probably not going to see it used a whole lot. So pregnancy. So if we have a pregnant woman who is who has malaria and, and starts getting the very severe side effects of malaria. Again, similar, similarly as to what we've been talking about with other um, cases of severe malaria, um, want to give it right away. We want to give the IV, the injectable formulation, to that individual. As far as what to give um, is a little bit less clear. Our testinate artemether seemed to work quite well in the second and third trimester. When it comes to the first trimester, it's kind of one of those flip a coin sort of situations. Which one do we use? Um, doesn't seem to be any real evidence one way or the other that any is any better or any worse than the other one. Um, quinine, again, problem with it, it's not that you can't use it, but you definitely want to make sure, check blood sugars in those individuals quite frequently because of the risk of severe hypoglycemia. So, what do we do once we get that person out of the woods, so to speak? How do we treat them? Well, it continues on. Um, with an oral therapy, the oral formulation of whichever IV medication they were getting, if it's available, um, we want to make sure they get at least seven days' worth of treatment um, with an oral formulation of the parenteral drug. So once they're able to take oral, we want to make sure they continue that on for at least seven days. And then seven days' worth of treatment with doxycycline um, or in a child, um, you'd want to give clindamycin or um, excuse me, or in a child or a pregnant woman, you'd want to give clindamycin to help prevent any of the associated side effects or the unwanted effects with the, the doxycycline. Um, what else could you do? Well, we could go back to one of those ACT combination therapies that we talked about earlier. Um, if that's what's available, if you have coartum readily available and not necessarily um, one of the other products available, you could give that individual, after getting the IV formulation, you could go back and give them something like coartum. Um, to that, and, and typically that's going to work pretty well. All right, so Primaquin. Primaquin is probably one that you've all heard about, and I don't know, maybe some of you have had, um, if you've got had malaria at one point in time. So there's two types of malaria that can actually kind of hide out in the liver for years and years and years. Um, Plasmodium vivax and Plasmodium ovale. Um, those two can kind of go dormant and hide in 
in the liver for a long period of time. Um, World War II veterans, a lot of, of, of servicemen or women who were in the South Pacific during World War II were infected with this, and they would continue to have malaria reoccurrences um, for years after they were out of that because it would hide in the, the liver and then come back out. So now we have available to us a medication called Primaquin, which is a, considered um, a cure for, for that liver stage of malaria. And so um, the, the cure rates, to, or to get that radical cure, you want to give it for 14 days. Um, you can also use Primaquin just for malaria itself. So you can be a malaria treatment. If you want to give that cure rate, give that radical cure to get malaria out of the liver, um, you give it probably a slightly higher dose um, on a, at a 0.5 milligram per kilogram for 14 days. Recommended only for pediatrics over the age of four, um, so that is one potential concern with it. Um, it's thought that it's probably safe in children less than that, but officially only recommended for those over the age of four. So, how do we treat malaria that comes in the United States? Again, what's that? And, and so that's definitely a common thing, right? Um, bring treatment back with us. With us, um, we did that on a trip to Kenya once, and we snuck some stuff back in um, just in case any of the team members uh, d- developed any sort of issues. So, so that's an option. I didn't say that, um, but 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 that that's potentially an option. Oh shoot, I'm being recorded. Um, so so we have that. Now that brings up an interesting point, though. What are we seeing with malaria drugs in a lot of the world? What's that? Counterfeit. Counterfeit drugs. And so we're seeing lots and lots and lots of counterfeit anti-malarial drugs. And so this comes down to one of those things. How do you know what you're getting? Um, how do you guys know? How do you? How do you? You don't, right? <laughs> it's kind of one of those. So the not-for-resale stuff could be from the government and could be there. Um, and it kind of comes down to one of these know-your-dealer as well, right? Um, you know, develop that relationship with somebody that you can trust to, to help give you because the counterfeit drugs are a big problem um, in a lot of the world. And so and they're very good. I mean, it, it, it's not hard to make a white round tablet look like any other white round tablets. Um, that's something we maybe we should offer. No, we wouldn't offer that class here. But you could do that, you know, relatively easily, and, and which is unfortunate. Um, but yes, look at the packaging. Look for things that seem off. Um, I try to identify, but realize that there is definitely, especially with anti-malarials, a big problem with counterfeit medications. Um, so yes, you can potentially bring stuff back in the United States with you. Um, good luck with some border people, but. Um, I haven't really heard of any big issues with that. Um, so, again, many drugs not available from the United, in the United States, they're not going to be at most of the hospitals stocked on their shelves. Um, most of them, though, we can get overnight from the CDC. So it's a simple phone call um, to the CDC. They're going to take a history. They're going to want to know about the patient. And then a lot of times they're going to tell the physician at the hospital, well, this is what we're going to do. And most of the times the physicians at the hospital are going to be just fine with that because they probably don't deal with malaria all day every day. And so they're happy to get that expert consult from the CDC. The other big thing that, that you'll notice, and maybe some of you have, is what the CDC recommends to treat, um, to treat malaria can be vastly different than what the World Health Organization recommends to treat malaria. And so who do you go with? Well, if you're in the rest of the world, the recommendation I always say is use the World Health Organizations because it is the World Health Organization. Not that the CDC, you know, the CDC definitely has um, arms in a lot of the world, and so they're very knowledgeable as well. But the CDC, predominantly the guidelines they have out there are for malaria that comes into the United States. And so there's a lot more that we're able to do here from a monitoring perspective and everything um, than, than what you're able to do in a lot of the rest of the world. So... World Health Organization, again, we'll talk about um, the references here shortly, but it's probably the better one to go with in many cases. So, kind of, fin- whoops, kind of finish off on vaccines. You know, this is the big thing we always hear about. You know, I was at a, a pharmacy conference, a straight pharmacy conference, I don't know, probably seven, eight years ago, and there was a company there 
we're going to have this vaccine on the market for malaria in the next year or two. Very, very confident. And it didn't happen. Um, and so currently there's no commercial vaccine that is available. Um, there's a bunch. There's at least 20 that are currently in development in different parts of the world. The one that probably a lot of you have heard of is this RTSS um, one, which is actually completed now phase three trials, has shown some efficacy, um, is currently being looked at by the World, World Health Organization um, to see if it will become a commercial product that we can all see or potentially see. And so it's, there's a lot of unknowns. There's not a lot of data necessarily out um, about this as to, you know, when might it be available? Well, if it'll be available. Um, when might it be available if it does become available? Um, dosing and all that sort of, of thing is kind of a, a lot of that's being decided yet at this point in time. But it, there's at least something maybe. Um, and so we'll see where that ends up in the next year or so, hopefully. So, again, um, there's a lot of other malarial vaccines that are currently being looked at. Experts really have them being about five to ten years behind um, this RTSS, which when you go back and, and think about um, what we saw with Ebola, what we saw with Zika, yes, those are very devastating diseases, right? I think mean, we can all agree we don't want to get either one, especially Zika in a pregnant woman or Ebola, period. Um, but from a scope of how quickly vaccine for Ebola was kind of pushed on through, it's very much unprecedented. And Zika, Zika vaccines, you know, Zika is definitely a lot different than malaria because we already had that baseline. We already had platform for other diseases very similar to Zika, like yellow fever or West Nile um, that we had vaccines available for. And so the platform started much higher for Zika, but it seems like everything is getting pushed through quite quickly for Zika uh, vaccine development. And malaria vaccine development just kind of seems to be squandering and just kind of flailing around, but um, vaccine development, again, against the virus is much easier, though, than trying to develop a vaccine against malaria. So on one hand, I understand it, but to the other hand, it seems like there's some governmental issues that keep getting thrown up uh, against malarial vaccines. So we'll see what, where we go in the future with malarial vaccines, but at least we have one that seems somewhat promising at this point in time. So, yes? Uh, so I have two really quick questions. Uh -huh. uh, your question slide. Oh, we can go to that right now. So no preemption. One, one was, why does inpatient management of malaria not include a combination therapy uh, for artisanate? Why is it just IV artisanate? Because the, the, the mefloquine and, and others are not available IV, so it's okay. kind of a – and you would assume, or one of the options then is once they're able to take oral, then you could go to that oral um, ACT therapy. But um, it's kind of a that, – that's kind of one of the big reasons is that those are not available um, IV. And when they – when they tried to develop IV formulations of, say, mefloquine, we saw a lot more arrhythmias with those, and so that's kind of the reason why we don't see those given. And then the other question was, I've heard of people using malarone at, like, a quadruple dose to treat malaria. Mm -hmm. um, is there any efficacy or recommendations about that? Yep, so, so that's one of the options. That's what the CDC would actually recommend is, is one of the treatment options. And I don't remember the exact dosing of malarone, but it's to give malarone um, for malaria here in the United States. I didn't mention that because malarone is not widely available um, in, in a lot of the world. And, um, for like a team of people, yep. if you have members who yep. are on it already yep. anyway, you could just take yep. it Yep. It's actually not recommended if you're taking it for prophylaxis to treat the malaria you got. Well, that's true too, yes. But it, it, saying that, I have And there it, it comes down to, you know, was that patient actually taking malarone the way they were supposed to? Um, which malarone is, well, they're all supposedly easy, but not always. So, so yes, thank you for adding that. Yes? So treatments for cerebral malaria. Oh, gosh, now you're getting out of my comfort zone pretty quickly. Um, so, and I don't know, I'm going to rely a lot on you guys, I think, to answer some of those because I'm not familiar with the, the intensive sort of thing. So, what are the more commonly thing, seen things for treatment of cerebral malaria? How do you... Still the same drug you 
In the, in the United States, I know that mannitol or the hypertonic saline is one of the things the CDC will recommend. Um, but, yeah, I don't know about... Well, and the problem with the hypertonic saline is that you don't have a central line that you have to make sure the concentration is correct. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah, so prophylaxis. So we're, if we're going somewhere, what should we do, not do, whatever? Here, here is an area where I, I do trust the CDC's website. Um, not that I don't trust them for, for, for treatment of malaria, but I think for prophylaxis, the CDC's website does a very nice job. And so here what really depends is where you're going um, because of resistance patterns that we're seeing, especially with chloroquine. For the most part, I think we can kind of write off chloroquine, unless you're going to the Caribbean or somewhere like that, Mexico. Um, chloroquine is not necessarily a good option. Um, methloquine would be a better option, um, depending on the CNS effects. Not recommended to use methloquine in a patient who has um, any, any existing psychiatric disease or difficulty sleeping to begin with, because methloquine can augment that. Malarone is an option. Um, which is a daily formulation um, compared to once a week for the other ones. Um, and then you can even use things like doxycycline. Um, you you want to continue that. And, and all of these, where, where we see in travelers who um, develop malaria and say they took their meds right, was they didn't do that follow-on treatment. They didn't do it for the four weeks or seven days, depending on which drug you're taking, after they got back and they're like, I feel fine. I didn't get malaria. Um, but those drugs are only targeting that plasmodium species at one stage of the life cycle. So you could have, you know, little babies floating around in you that are not being attacked by that medication. So I don't, what, did you have specific? Oh, for long term. Yeah. Yeah, so, so long-term, none of them um, are actually recommended, you know, for real long-term. Um, it's kind of one of those risk versus benefit sort of thing. And I don't, has anyone taken mefloquine or any of those long-term? Any ringing in the ears or anything like that? Okay. Malarone. Malarone? Yeah. So it's mefloquine for 20 years? Wow. Um, yeah, for the most part, when you look, start digging into the data, you're not going to find anything beyond like six months use. And so you're going to hear a lot of anecdotal things like this. And, you know, to find an official recommendation of anything longer than six months, I don't know of anything. You know, doxycycline, though, is going to be one, you know, kids use it all the time for acne. And so there's some data for long-term use. Um, but then with doxycycline, you have the, the sun, you know, concern. And so where the sun block um, and, and do that. But, but yeah, anecdotally, I think they've all probably been used for, for varying lengths of time, but which one would be, I don't know. I think I would take, if it were me, I'd take my chances with malaria and treat the malaria than take something long-term. Would you recommend preventive medication for someone who you know have, like, innate immunity, like someone with a G60P deficiency? So would you recommend which one? 
So, so with G6PD, which one would you give to prevent? Um, if you knew somebody had it, I think you'd probably be stuck using one of the, the like doxycycline um, for, for something like that because the rest of them can have some concerns depending which one on, on the G6PD. But doxycycline would be one of the, the safer ones. Yes? Could you use something like what? Chloramphenicol. Chloramphenicol. Oh, for malaria. I don't know if I've seen anything for chloramphenicol for malaria. We're getting a no from the back. <laughs> yes. So with me- yeah, so mefloquine for treatment of malaria, since it's short term, we don't have that same risk. Now mefloquine for prophylaxis, where you're going to be taking it for five, six weeks or longer, um, yes, um, the, it's a contraindication to give it to patients who have known psychiatric illness. Um, and so yeah, because we, we do, and you know, and that mefloquine's the the bad drug, you know, the one that we hear about in the news when you know somebody did something bad, you know killed somebody or whatever, and they blame it on malaria med, it's, it's mefloquine. But then when you dig back deeper into it, there was known history in most of those patients of some sort of psychiatric illness. So, It does make for interesting dreams. Um, again, again, like I said, I take mefloquine and I don't even recognize or I don't even realize it. I feel no different, but um, my wife gets very vivid dreams. I've talked to other people who've had very, very vivid dreams um, doing mefloquine or doing mefloquine. That doesn't sound right. Um, but <laughs> talking about dreams, taking mefloquine, yes. Yep, that's exactly what you're doing. Is, is doxycycline is, so the, the little parasite, the little plasmodium species has these good GI bacteria just like you and I do. Um, and so by killing that, that's, that's how the doxycycline, tetracycline, um, even azithromycin and other antibiotics, um, how they actually work for preventing malaria. So, yeah, it's kind of weird, but it, it's, that's what it does. Yes? I had a specific uh, question about prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. I came back from the Dominican Republic. I could feel I was getting a sore throat and the planes coming back. And so I got pretty sick uh, respiratory infection. I went to my doctor, and he said he gave me amoxicillin, fibrillinic acid, for a week. He said, don't take the doxycycline because of an interaction. So my question was, when I start over again on doxycycline, do I take it for four weeks? He, he said, take the doxycycline mm-hmm. after, you know, go back on that. Do you take it for a full four weeks? So... So a full four weeks after you get back, that's the recommend. Well, no, four, full four weeks after I finished the amoxicillin. At that point in time, how long had you been back? Uh, it was right after I came back. Um, so I'm trying to think. You could, I mean, it's not going to hurt you to continue taking it for the four full weeks, for the full four weeks um, to, to do that. How, you're on the augmentin for ten days or something? Seven for seven days. So, so yeah, you could go ahead and start taking the doxycycline for the full four weeks. Um, the other thing, though, that you'd see with doxycycline is by that point in time, they're either, you're either going to start developing symptoms of malaria or not. But I think by, by doing the continuing for the four, full four weeks would be the best course of options for you. So. Well, I wasn't going to go there um, <laughs> to question that physician, but I don't know what the interaction would have been uh, with the amoxicillin and doxycycline, but I don't know. Um, two, I mean, two antibiotics, yes, it's going to flag in everyone's computer system that you're on two antibiotics, but above and beyond that, I don't know what the interaction would have been. All right, one more, and then I'll let you all go. As far as I know, now I didn't dig into a whole lot in the ins and outs of that, but as far as I know, um, you would still potentially do SP. Yes. So the one reference I keep recommending, um, this well, there's kind of two here. You have the World Health Organization World Malaria Report, which comes out every year, um, and is very good to find out those 28-day cure rates, to find out what's actually going on in different areas of the world. 
Um, and then the World Health Organization guidelines for treatment of malaria. Um, they publish those. I don't think it's every year. I think it's every couple, three years. Um, but very, very detailed, hundreds of pages between those two um, things, hundreds, hundreds of pages of good information. Um, and if you have difficulty sleeping because of mefloquine, it could help with that. I don't know. But, but actually very good information that I'd, that I'd recommend um, to any of you to download. It's available free, easy to find. If you don't want to type in those whole things, you can just go to Google and type in World Health Organization Malaria Report or uh, the World Health Organization Guidelines for Treatment of Malaria. So. Thank you for your attention. Um, I'm going to let you guys go. If you have other questions, please feel free to come up and talk with me.